0: I was to ask you what the longest book of the Bible, what would you say? Any ideas? Most would say Psalms because it has 150 chapters, but actually comes in third. Jeremiah is the biggest book in the Bible by word count, makes up 5%, followed by Genesis, followed by Psalms. And so here we are, coming to the last message in this series on the longest book in the Bible. And in all the messages, about 13 that we've had, we've sampled some of the prophecies, not all of them. We'd be here for a very long time if we went through every prophecy, but we've sampled the main prophecies and we looked at the life and the times of Jeremiah, his adventures and his misadventures. And so today we're going to see how it all ends. We're going to tie up some loose ends and we'll see that not only does Jeremiah end his life as a refugee, but his title prophet of tears is with him to the end. However, as we do, we'll see that as we go through tough times, that our Heavenly Father knows every tear that rolls down our cheeks. And because of the cross, no pain need be wasted. So we turn to the final days of Jerusalem and even Jeremiah himself. Jerusalem is under siege for a second time. Nine years earlier, the Babylonian army had surrounded and eventually broken into the city of God. And at that time, Nebuchadnezzar the king took captive the king and many of the Israelites. And in that first siege, we have Daniel and his three friends and many others carried off to Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar set up a puppet king, the uncle to the true king, Zedekiah, and then taxed, started taxing Israel. But now, nine years later, Zedekiah is fed up and he rebels against the Babylonians And so they have come back in military force to lay siege a second time. And all of this is by God's hand. Because all during this time, Jeremiah had been saying, repent, turn from your idol worshipping, turn back to God's word. Otherwise, God will send the Babylonians to punish you. God did it once and then gave those remaining an opportunity to turn back to him, but they didn't. So the Babylonians back again and at these last stages during death in the eye the people in Jerusalem had tried every human option possible so as a last draw they decided to repent, turn back to God release their slaves but is it true repentance? so God decides to test their sincerity he causes Pharaoh's army in the south in Egypt to march to the southern border of Israel to meet this threat The Babylonian commander withdraws his troops from Jerusalem to go and face this threat and Jerusalem is free for a time. And in an earlier message we looked how, in fact, that repentance was not true and that the people in Jerusalem returned to their wicked ways. But also what happened in this time, well, Jeremiah happened to be free. He was released from prison. And we remember again from an earlier message that while he was in prison he bought some land in his hometown. He decides to go to that land and check out the fields that he had bought. And we pick this up in Jeremiah chapter 37, verse 11. After the Babylonian army had withdrawn from Jerusalem because of Pharaoh's army, Jeremiah started to leave the city to go to the territory of Benjamin to get his share of the property among the people there. But when he reached the Benjamin gate, the captain of the guard, whose name was Irajah son of Shomaiah, son of Hananiah, arrested him and said, you are deserting to the Babylonians. It's not true, Jeremiah said. I am not deserting to the Babylonians. But Urijah would not listen to him. Instead, he arrested Jeremiah and had him brought to the officials. There he was duly investigated, beaten and thrown, not into prison, but this time into a muddy cistern. Cistern is a hole in the ground like a well but this one was empty of water and just had mud at the end. Imagine being thrown down like a well and just maybe being knee or even waist deep in mud. You're not going to live for for very long if that's where you're put. Some friends of Jeremiah's beseeched the king, went to the king, and they were able to rescue him and have him put in prison where he languished. Not too long, though, because it wasn't long after this that the Babylonians broke through the city walls, sacked the city, destroyed the walls and the temple, captured the king, Zedekiah, and had him killed. And then they gathered the people together and put them in chains to march them off to captivity. Well, what of Jeremiah? What was he to do? The commander went looking for Jeremiah and found him amongst the captives in chains ready to be marched off. And he recognized Jeremiah and said, well, you can either come with me and I will look after you in Babylon, or you can stay here, and do, do whatever you want, go wherever you want. And Jeremiah remembers his call all those years ago under the good king Josiah, and his call was to speak God's word to God's people and God's city. So Jeremiah remains faithful to the call. Meanwhile, the Babylonians had had enough of a puppet king, so they set up a governor to manage those few poor people that were left. And this governor was by all accounts a good man, until he was assassinated. Not only him, but some of the Babylonian officials. Now, the assassin, he made his escape. But the Jews that were left behind, completely innocent, they panicked. They thought, oh no, the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to kill us because they think we killed their governor and killed their officials. So they decide, let's run away to Egypt. And they make plans and they think, well, maybe we should check with God. And so they say, Jeremiah, can you ask God whether we should go to Egypt or not. And God comes back emphatically and says, no, you are not to go to Egypt. You remnant are to stay. The Babylonians, I promise you, will not harm you. And so what is their response? Yeah, goodness me. As Judy read, when they heard God's word, they said, you're a liar. God does want us to go to Egypt. And to add insult to injury... Against his will, by force, the remnants grab Jeremiah and force him to go to Egypt with them. He is now a refugee in a foreign country. And of course, what do you think happens in Egypt? Do God's people finally learn their lesson? Well, no, because the women see the Egyptian ladies worshipping the Queen of Heaven, a goddess, and they think, we want some of that. And they start worshipping the Egyptian gods. And Jeremiah is exasperated. And God's word comes to him. And guess what this word is? No surprises. God says to his people in Egypt, If you do not repent, I will send the Babylonians all the way down to Egypt. And you will be destroyed. And history tells us that's exactly what happens. The Babylonians, a while later, came down to Egypt and beat Pharaoh and they cause significant military problems in Egypt. And there the book ends. There's a few more prophecies after this account of uh, other countries, prophecies against Egypt and Babylon and things like that. A lovely twist at the end where the legitimate king of Judah, the legitimate king in exile, is wonderfully blessed. But what of Jeremiah? The Bible falls silent. We don't know whether he died in Egypt or not. Jewish tradition, now this is not in the Bible, but Jewish tradition says that he was eventually stoned because the Jews in Egypt were so fed up with him banging on about repenting and not worshipping idols, they just got some rocks and doubt to him. Now we don't know if that's true or not, but it kind of sounds like it would be true, wouldn't it? Now that's Jeremiah's story. What do you think about that? Seems a bit of a waste, isn't it? I've kind of had two thoughts or prayers going around my mind when I've been working through this series. And one of the prayers is, Lord, please do not give me a ministry like Jeremiah. (laughs) It's a bit dangerous when you say that to the Lord, isn't it? (laughs) But, uh, you know, I have immense respect for that guy. The second thing is, why did he have to suffer so much? I mean, Lord, couldn't you have cut him a break? You know, it just seemed to go on and on and on. And, and it's this question that's come to my mind. Why do good people who honour God suffer? And that's what I want to explore now, this whole issue of, of suffering in the context of Jeremiah's story and our story. And so we'll do that by looking at uh, three questions. Why do people suffer? Why do good people suffer? And thirdly, why do good people who honour God suffer? Now it's that last question, what I call the Jeremiah question, that we'll spend most of our time. But let's look at these three questions. So the first question is, why do people suffer? Now I think most of us have a sort of handle on this. We know that it's part of the human condition. Uh, We live in a natural world that has earthquakes and weather variations. And this week we've heard about in the United States some sort of tornadoes have Killed some people and devastated some cities and towns. And, and we understand that. We don't like it, but we understand we live in a world where that sort of natural disaster can cause people to suffer. We also know that our bodies are not immortal and that we that we get sick from time to time. A part of life is that we all eventually die. So we understand that there are times when we suffer because of illness or someone we love. We also a human and therefore we make unwise choices. Some of us make lots of unwise choices and those consequences come back to us and make us suffer so it might be in lifestyle with what we eat or drink, it might be in relationships where we are not good with the relationships and it might be in issues of character and honesty and we suffer the consequences I and mean, we don't like the suffering but we kind of understand why it happens but what about good people? Why do good people have to suffer? If God is who he says he is, if God is good, surely he would be looking after good people. And it's our sense of fairness, isn't it? This is what we're concerned about. Is it fair that good people suffer? Is it just? Where's God in all this? And of course that brings us to our third question, why do good people who want to God suffer? We expect them in particular for God to keep an eye on and to shield from the difficulties in life. We expect people like Jeremiah to have a much better run. Uh, You may have heard of the missionary Jim Elliott. Bright young man, newly married, trained as a missionary, top of his class, uh, and his initial contact with a tribe in South America and Brazil in the Amazon rainforest, he's killed. Straight away. And you think, this guy's amazing, Lord. You know, He was in his early 20s. Imagine what he'd be like over the decades and how he could bless the kingdom of God. And what about his wife? Only married 18 months. Took her a week to hear the news by by shortwave radio. Lord, why do good people who honour you suffer? Now this question is complex and greater minds than mine have wrestled and continue to wrestle with this. But in the time that's left, let's look at the Bible and we'll look for two responses, two ways of understanding this question. And the first one is in James chapter 1, Uh, verses 2 to 4, which uh, was read before. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. This is the first answer to our question, why do good people who honour God suffer? We kind of understand it, we don't particularly like it, but this whole concept of refining, of moulding, of shaping us to be a better person, not just in in character, but to be moulded and shaped to be more like Jesus. Because of the cross, no pain need be wasted. If we come to Christ, during our suffering, lean into him and say, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to change in my life? Then nothing need be wasted. Jesus did not come to make you comfortable. Jesus came to make you great. Say that again, Jesus did not come to make you comfortable so that life would go well and you would retire in ease and see your grandchildren all live well and pass away. And that is not what Jesus came for. He came to make you great. He came to make you in his image, to take on his character and his compassion, to captivate every affection of your heart for him, for Christ alone, so that all our other affections fall away. And suffering is one significant way that God uses to accomplish this, to refine, to remove the dross and the impurities so that we will be more like Christ, so this is the first answer to our Jeremiah question: Why do good people who honor God suffer? because this is God's way to test and grow our faith, to develop perseverance, and to build character and I think I think we kind of understand that we much prefer it though, when God is doing this in someone else's life, don't we you know. Good idea, God, 100% behind you, as long as it's for the person next to me in the pew, not, not me. We understand. But don't like it, but we understand. The second response, though, that I want to spend time on is much more puzzling, but I think much more beautiful. Much more puzzling, but there's a beauty, I think, to this answer. And instead of turning to James, we'll turn to Philippians. And there are two verses, two passages in Philippians that I think help us understand. And the first is Philippians chapter 1 verse 29. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Now the phrase granted to you carries a sense of royal favour. As a king grants a subject a generous favour from his immense wealth, so God in this verse is granting us not one but two amazing favours. And the first favour is to believe on Christ, to believe on Jesus. This is a favour from the very throne of God. You may think that it was your own will and your own understanding, your own cleverness that allowed you to believe in Jesus. But no, that's not how it works. Saving faith. Belief that will cause us to be saved is a gift from God. We hear about Jesus. We may have heard about Jesus. It might be the 40th time that we've heard about Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit quickens us. It's hard to put into words, but he he flicks the switch. And suddenly we realize, well, it's true. (laughs) And something changes. And that is a gift of God from the very throne of our Heavenly Father. So that's the first gift our King of Kings gives us. But also, according to this verse, the second great gift he gives us from his throne room is to suffer on behalf of Christ. Not quite sure about this, are we? In fact, some of you are saying, actually, I did not sign up for this. <laughs> I saved for salvation, forgiveness, a little bit of healing along the way, and an eternal life. So That's what I that's what I signed up for. I don't remember anything about suffering for Jesus, and some of you might be thinking of that verse about Jesus saying, "Unless you pick up your cross and follow me." So we are called to believe, and it is a gift from a generous God, and we are called to suffer. And I'm like, oh, how does this make sense? Well, that's the second verse in Philippians chapter three, verse ten. Philippians three ten. I want to know Christ, the power of His resurrection. And the fellowship and sharing in his suffering. First two sound pretty good. The third one, I wouldn't mind uh, just twinking out (laughs) my Bible. Goodness me. Let's, let's have a look at those three clauses one by one. The first one, Paul says, I want to know Christ. In these words, we have the heart of the apostle Paul. All that he did, all that he was, his passions and motivations flow from this one desire to know Jesus. And it's the same for every Christ follower. In fact, if you don't want to know Christ more, I'd say you're not a Christian. If you do not want to know Jesus more, then I am concerned for your mortal soul. You may think you're a Christian because you come to church. You may think you're a Christian because you read the Bible and and you're doing the things that Christians do. But unless at your core you want to know Jesus better, then I'd say you've missed the boat. You are not only not in the boat, but you're not on the wharf. Some people come to church because their parents came to church and they come to church. Some people come to church because they love the fellowship uh, or whatever, the music. They have friends here, and these are all good reasons, and everybody is welcome for all those reasons. We will never turn anyone away. But unless Christ is your center, and you want to know him just that little bit more, then I'd say you're missing the whole point. Paul says, I want to know Christ, first and foremost. Or everything I do flows out of the fact that I have met Christ, and as I serve him, I know him better. That's the first thing. Second thing that Paul wants is that he wants to know the power of the resurrection. And I can say amen to that. I don't think anyone here doesn't want to know more of the power of the resurrection. Every life transformed. Every prayer answered. Every comfort in sorrow. Every joy in success. Every soul rescued from the fires of hell is by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And it's the power that the Holy Spirit works in and through us. And who can argue about wanting to know that more in our lives? But it's the third clause. This is the puzzle. The puzzle which I think once we get to the bottom of it, you will find quite beautiful. Because Paul wants to know not only Christ and the power of his resurrection, Paul wants to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And the key word here is fellowship. In a very real sense, when we suffer and suffer rightly, we deepen our fellowship with Christ. I think of the HBO miniseries called Band of Brothers. It follows a company of American paratroopers from their training to their first conflict at D-Day right through to the war's end. And it's a story of shared experience. They shared the horrors of war. And these men who would never have been friends in civilian life found that because they shared this horrors of war, the suffering, they became a band of brothers. And on the outside, looking in, for instance, in that TV series, uh, every episode started with some interviewing of these older, older gentlemen and then you would see the actors portraying them you know, through the, through the episode. But there was a real sense of fellowship and bonding between these men that even I on the outside could only catch a glimpse of what it was like, this band of brothers who had shared in the suffering. In the movie Saving Private Ryan by Steven Spielberg, in an interview he said the only time he saw his father cry was annually when his war buddies would get together decades after the war and they would share stories that fellowship in what they had suffering meant that their friendships was deep and rich and healing and so to suffer rightly is a is a royal privilege haven't got time to look at 1 peter chapter 2 where peter says don't christians don't suffer for the wrong reason Don't suffer because you steal things. Don't suffer because you get in trouble with the law or you make bad choices. But Peter says if you are following Christ and you're doing the right thing and you suffer, then you are honouring him. And so it is a royal privilege to suffer for Christ and with Christ, not just because our faith grows and our character moulded, but because we have a deeper and richer and more personal walk with he who suffered for us. And you know, I find this very puzzling, but I think it's quite beautiful. Personally, I don't go looking for suffering. I like to think I'm very good at avoiding it. <laughs> uh, and, and that's natural, isn't it? Now, I'm sure we all structure our lives where we can to avoid unnecessary suffering. But without a doubt, God will allow some difficulty into your life. You may be facing a difficulty, but don't waste it. Lean into God, realizing that you will share something very deep and personal. My quiet time this week, I'm reading through one Samuel, and I came across the end of Samuel's ministry. He's an old man. He's got two sons, and they're groomed to be judged, but they're not following God. They're being dishonest. And so the people come to Samuel and say, We're finished with you, we want a king. And this upsets Samuel no end. So he goes to God and said, look, they want a king. And God says to them, they are not rejecting you, Samuel. They are rejecting me. And as it plays out, Saul becomes king. But do you know that Samuel knows what it is to be rejected like God was rejected? There's a sense where Samuel could understand in a way that you and I can't, what it was to be rejected. And so Samuel was sharing in the suffering of God. And this is how God works with us, with our suffering. There will be an aspect of our suffering that will connect us with Christ on the cross that will really mould and shape us. And people looking in will be able to get a bit of a taste of it, but they won't experience what you've gone through. Let me finish with this story. You may have heard it before. It's very apt. For Jeremiah, and it's very apt, I think, for you and I. There was a lady who was studying a passage in Malachi where God talks of himself as a refiner and purifier of silver. Now, this puzzled her, so she thought, she wondered if there was a local silversmith that she could talk to. So she found a name and got in contact, and the silversmith invited her over so that she could see him work. And as she watched, the silversmith held a piece of silver over the fire and let it heat up. He explained that in refining silver, one needed to hold the silver in the middle of the fire where the flames were hottest, so the impurities would raise to the surface and burn off. And the woman thought about God holding us in such a hot spot and our impurities rising to the surface to be dealt with. She asked the silversmith if it was true that he had to sit there in front of the fire the whole time the silver was being refined, just like that verse in the Bible said. And he answered, yes, he did have to sit there uh, with the silver, and not only that, he had to keep a special eye on the silver, because if he let it heat up too much, it would ruin the process. So she said, well, how do you know when the silver is refined and at its purest? And he smiled and he answered, oh, well, it's very straightforward. When I can see my image in the molten silver, then I know it's ready. God refines each of us until he can see the beauty of Jesus in your life. I'll say that again because it's so important. God will refine us until he can see the beauty in Jesus in our lives. And this is the answer to the Jeremiah question. Why does God allow good people who are serving him to suffer? It's so that he can mould Jesus into that person's life. Indeed, we are like the Apostle James and like Jeremiah who can say, I consider it pure joy whenever we face trials of many kinds. Why? Because we know that when we suffer rightly, we will have a fellowship with Jesus that is deep and rich and a great delight. Let's pray.